there are technically only 46 states in America. Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Kentucky and Virginia all call themselves Commonwealths instead. The difference is in name only and is thought to exist simply because a few 18th century constitution writers believed that the word Commonwealth better suited the New Republic's anti-monarchist sentiments. The Commonwealth of Virginia is the site of the first electoral test of Joe Biden's presidency. Once solidly red, it seemed to have become reliably blue, with Democrats' recent electoral dominance confirmed in 2020 by President Biden's 10-point victory and the capture of the state legislature. But less than a week until voters decide on their next governor, polls show that Democrat Terry McAuliffe is neck and neck with his Republican opponent, Glenn Youngkin. How did it get this tight? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is this as good as it gets for the Democrats? Democratic lawmakers in Washington are struggling to pass a budget bill and fighting among themselves. The president's approval ratings are in the doldrums and demographic trends are setting the party up for long-term weakness. It's now a year until the 2022 midterms and over the next couple of episodes, we're going to assess the health of the two main parties. This week, have the Democrats already passed their electoral peak? With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Fasman, how are things with you? Things with me are fine. Here in the, in, the, in the Southern Westchester Bureau, it is all Halloween all the time. My older son has won his school's contest for best costume several years running, and he is aiming for a third, and it's very tense over here. Can you reveal what the costume's going to be, or, or might that jeopardize his chances? I cannot yet. Confidential. We'll talk about it next week. <laughs> Charlotte, how's Halloween shaping up where you are? Um, I'm very much in suspense for... Fasman's son's costume. Um, I'm well. I am looking ahead to the COP meeting that will take place in Scotland and dismayed at the lack of American action on climate. Um, but I direct our listeners, if they haven't already, to check out to a lesser degree, which is a fantastic podcast that The Economist has put out ahead of COP, um, which includes all kinds of great stuff, including an interview with Bill Gates about climate action. Um, really interesting discussion between our colleagues. So encourage you to give it a listen. So while Charlotte's been thinking about the future of the planet, John, you've been contemplating Halloween costumes, but you have been doing some work as well, right? You've been in Virginia reporting on this gubernatorial race. Yeah, this week I was in Arlington, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., which is really sort of the heart of Democratic Virginia. I went to see Joe Biden's stump for Terry McAuliffe a couple of days ago and to talk to voters who were dedicated enough to brave unusually cold temperatures and high winds, which unfortunately you'll hear on this recording, to stand outside in the field for hours. The first person I talked to, this was on a bench while we were waiting to go in. She had an adorable little dog with her. It was a woman named Kristen Reed who had come down from Philadelphia to show her support. And she told me why she wished her fellow Democrats were as enthusiastic as she was. 
it's too important. People may not be excited about uh, Governor McAuliffe, but they need to realize what's important. And it affects you more if, if Terry McAuliffe loses this race, the differences in your life will be painful <laughs> and for the country. It's not just about Virginia at this point. So, um, What are the differences when you say the differences will be painful? What are you worried about? Oh, it's, it's a bellwether race. We have a lot of, I think, people who are hoping for a more progressive direction. It seems like that's what I pick up from most folks. And so they're not thrilled that that's not happening right away. But, you know, my suggestion is keep the faith because it's right around the corner. But if we start losing seats and new laws come about and we lose progress in states where we had um, a blue governor's mansion, things start to slip pretty quickly. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a shame to lose ground because you have hard feelings about not getting what you hope to get in the immediate future. Another thing I think Democrats are worried about is engagement. And uh, Barbara Norales, who's a woman who I spoke to really shortly before the assorted luminaries started taking to the stage, was worried that she's not seeing people as engaged as they were in 2020. I've been watching the demographics of, of, of the people that are coming out. And um, where I live, the neighborhood that I live, is, is, is a wide Latino community. And I haven't seen that demographic of people out here. I'm not sure if they're going to participate or they're not going to participate. Now, there is always an enthusiasm drop-off in off-year elections, especially from the party that has just won power at the previous cycle. I think what Terry McAuliffe is doing in this race to try to counter that is he's basically running against Donald Trump far more than he's running against Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin said that Donald Trump represents so much of why he is running for governor. Let me be clear, folks. I'm running for governor for you. And the rally's closer was, of course, President Biden, who ended with a simple, strong message. Show up for democracy, for Virginia, for the United States of America. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Vote, 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 vote. And so that was it. Virginia is a funny state. It was reliably Republican on the presidential level for years. It's now reliably Democratic. But they hold their governor's races in off years, like the state of New Jersey does. And usually there's a counter-cyclical trend. The one to break that pattern was Terry McAuliffe, who won in 2013, right after Barack Obama had won the White House. He replaced Bob McDonnell, who is a Republican who won after Obama won the first term. And of course, in 2017, Ralph Northam won a year after Donald Trump took over. So Democrats are going to have to work against this countercyclical trend. And they're also going to have to drum up enthusiasm among their voters, many of whom are probably sort of exhausted after the past four years. It's going to be a hard road to hoe. I think if I were putting money on it, I would put money on Terry McAuliffe. But the polls are a lot closer than he would probably like them to be. So, John, one reason why people are interested in Virginia's gubernatorial race is that it matters who is the governor of Virginia. It's a big state, all the rest of it. You know, this race matters in its own terms. But then there's a kind of pundit reason for being interested in it, which is it's the first electoral test of the Biden presidency. And the story sometimes goes like this. Look, Joe Biden's approval ratings are low. They've slipped. 
Democrats are not doing great getting their budget bill through Congress. And you can see the results of this in Terry McAuliffe's polling. Now, that's sort of a bit true, but it's also sort of not true, right? I mean, you already referenced this powerful countercyclical effect. Basically, when one party holds the White House, its candidate tends to do pretty badly in the Virginia gubernatorial election, right? And and sort of given that, isn't McAuliffe doing about as well or about as badly as you'd expect? I mean, the main motivating force in American politics now is dislike of the other side. And that's just more powerful when the other side holds the White House. Yep, I think that's absolutely true. And I think the bellwether thing is a pundit's fallacy, right? If Terry McAuliffe wins, it will be because there are just many more Democrats than Republicans in Virginia. That wasn't true for a long time, but Northern Virginia has boomed and the rural areas have lost population. It's just simple demographics. And I think it doesn't much matter to Democrats' fortunes next year whether he wins or loses, right? They're likely to lose their congressional majorities, whatever Terry McAuliffe does. So it is an interesting race in its own right, but I I don't know how much it shows about Democrats' future. I agree with that. But I do think that it's worth looking at Virginia. And part of why we are looking at Virginia now is because, not because it's necessarily a bellwether, but it does expose some of Democrats' real vulnerabilities and it help explain why Biden might be in trouble uh, going forward with his agenda and why his colleagues in the Senate and House might face trouble. And if you look at the the issues that are coming up in the race— there are ones that will sustain Republicans, I think, going forward. So Youngkin paying a lot of attention to parents, talking about mask mandates, critical race theory in schools. When you think about the school board meetings that have taken place in Virginia and elsewhere, they recall to me the Tea Party protests that I attended at healthcare town halls uh, before the midterms in 2010. And that was obviously right before there was a huge swing against Democrats in Congress. And so I think that both the the inability to point to accomplishments in Washington, plus the types of cultural issues, this kind of new culture war that Youngkin has seized, seized on, I think those are, those are two really big problems for Democrats. And so Virginia, it's not as Virginia goes, so goes the nation. But I do think it's important in explaining how some of these issues may play out in electoral ads and how problematic they may be for Democrats. Yeah, I agree with that, Charlotte. I have flashbacks to the 2014 midterm election cycle, which I reported on, and the kind of protests that we saw uh, before then, also Tea Party-ish demonstrations, which do have really strong echoes of those school board meetings. You mentioned in passing Youngkin there, Glenn Youngkin, who's Terry McAuliffe's opponent. I'm fascinated by Glenn Youngkin because he tells you something about the state of the modern Republican Party, right? Here is an old-fashioned, in many ways, kind of Rockefeller Republican background sort of a guy. You know, he was CEO of the Carlyle Group, which is one of the biggest private equity firms in the world. And in the Trump era Republican Party, he's reinvented himself as a sort of populist. He's you know, talks a great deal about his support for President Trump. And as you say, he's focusing on these kind of cultural grievance issues. He's also one of these really interesting uh, modern Republicans who has a very, you know, blue chip sort of Harvard CV. He was at Harvard and at Harvard Business School, I think. And there's this interesting sort of Trump-Harvard nexus uh, within American populism, which is not exactly what you might uh, expect looking at the movement from the outside. I will say that Democrats are also leaning into the culture war aspect of this race as well. When I was at the rally, McAuliffe had staffers 
who were going around giving out copies of uh, Toni Morrison novels because Glenn Youngkin's closing ad was from a mother who said her son was terrified by a Toni Morrison book, and he has advocated striking it from the AP curriculum in Virginia's schools. And of course, the McAuliffe campaign ran with that. They said it was a, a racist dog whistle. So it's not just Terry McAuliffe running against Donald Trump. It's Terry McAuliffe avidly running on the Democratic culture war. So that issue of how Toni Morrison's beloved came to be the heart of the fight between McAuliffe and Youngkin is pretty fascinating. So Youngkin has gone after McAuliffe for um, vetoing legislation in 2016 and, and 2017 that would have told parents when there was a book that had sexually explicit content in it um, and required the teacher to give an alternative book um, to any parents who objected. And so this came up in a debate between McAuliffe and Youngkin. And McAuliffe could have easily made this a question of censorship, that parents shouldn't be allowed to bar schools from teaching a classic like Beloved or, or, or another book. But instead, what he said is, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach, which is really the equivalent of a porterhouse steak for Republicans. They have feasted on that for a very long time. And it's those types of, um, I think John Fasman is really right, it's that kind of fissure that has emerged within this new era of culture war, where you have Republicans talking about how Democrats and bureaucrats are instilling values that parents don't agree with within schools, and Democrats, um, as, as John says, handing out copies of Beloved. I mean, it's just a deeply strange place that we're in. But I frankly think that any time... Democrats or Republicans are talking about beloved in schools, it's a win for Republicans. Democrats should be, in their ideal world, pointing to huge accomplishments on inequality, on climate legislation, thinking about how to make America more competitive in the long term through investing in infrastructure, investing in worker training that builds up talent, etc. If you're in a debate about whether a Toni Morrison book should or should not be taught in schools, I feel like Republicans have already won. Yes, wonderful though Toni Morrison is as a writer. I think your analysis of this situation is spot on, Charlotte. Okay, thank you both. We'll go back to when the civil rights movement drove the Democrats apart in a moment. But first, a reminder that if you don't subscribe to The Economist, then you're missing out. This week, there's more from the Virginia governor's race. We report on efforts to defund the police in Minnesota. And the Lexington column is on Joe Biden's collapsing approval ratings. Checks and balance listeners can find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. We'll add that link to the notes for this episode. When state police violently attacked voting rights campaigners in Selma, Alabama, in March 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson sensed an opportunity. He'd started preparing legislation the previous year, but in the public outcry that followed the bloody events, he saw the chance to turn the protesters' cause into law. Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. Addressing a televised joint session of Congress a week later, LBJ began his campaign to persuade lawmakers that they now had to act. Many of the issues of civil rights are very complex and most difficult. But about this, there's can and should be no argument. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. For many black Americans in the South, registering to vote was impossible. 
The harsh fact is that in many places in this country, men and women are kept from voting simply because they are Negroes. Every device of which human ingenuity is capable has been used to deny this right. Local officials would find any excuse to turn them away, including setting fiendish literacy tests, which might ask them to recite the entire constitution from memory, or answer questions like, how many bubbles are there in a bar of soap? For the fact is that the only way to pass these barriers is to show a white skin. This wasn't LBJ's first civil rights rodeo with Congress, and he was determined to avoid the frustrations of the previous year, when Southern Democrats had tried to derail and water down legislation. That civil rights bill was passed after eight long months of debate. And when that bill came to my desk from the Congress for my signature, the heart of the voting provision had been eliminated. This time, on this issue, there must be no delay or no hesitation or no compromise with our purpose. His party's landslide victory in the 1964 elections wasn't much help to Johnson. He was facing a Congress divided on civil rights by geography rather than party. Knowing Southern Democrats wouldn't back him, he needed to win Republican votes. If there ever was a president up to the task, it was LBJ. After years of striving for power, only to be rewarded with what he considered the powerless vice presidency, Johnson made it clear to Congress that he wasn't going to waste his time in America's highest office. But now I do have that chance. And I'll let you in on a secret. I mean to use it. His years in the Senate had made Johnson a virtuoso at bending legislators to his will. As his vice president and former Senate colleague Hubert Humphrey put it, he just knew how to get me. Top of his list of people to get was Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader in the Senate. LBJ tasked Dirksen with co-drafting and co-sponsoring the bill, which outlawed the malicious literacy tests and gave the federal government oversight of states' voting laws. Republican support followed, and the Bipartisan Voting Rights Act passed the Senate with 77 votes to 19. Only senators from southern states, overwhelmingly Democratic, were against it. The House soon followed, and LBJ signed the bill into law in early August, with Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks by his side. Today is a triumph for freedom, as huge as any victory that's ever been won on any battlefield. Ever since, pundits have pointed to LBJ's example and asked why the president can't just twist a few arms and get senators from the other party to vote for his agenda. But the passage of civil rights legislation closed off that possibility. Those northern Republicans who voted for it would, over the next few decades, be replaced by Democrats, and the Southern Democrats would become Republicans. The Democratic Party, which had once been an amalgam of northern Labour, Catholics and southern whites, became more united around a clear set of values, 
but it also became less electorally dominant. The Democratic Party's reward for passing civil rights legislation was that four of the next five presidents would be Republicans. Charlotte, there were a certain number of LBJ comparisons when Joe Biden became president. You know, Biden, longtime senator, knew his way around the building, traded on his ability to persuade senators to do things they otherwise might not do. Of course, it's much more complicated than that these days. The parties are more homogenous. It's incredibly hard to get people to cross the aisle. And we're seeing that as the Democrats you know, struggle to get their budget bill through. Yes, it's been kind of remarkable to watch how Biden's agenda has been threatened by just two senators. You can have over 80 million people vote for the president, and you can have Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema really hold him up. And the polling on it is sort of fascinating. So, of course, Biden's polling has collapsed, particularly since the end of the summer, which seems to be connected with his handling Afghanistan, his failure to get anything done on the domestic level. But his ideas, you know, build back better, which is his infrastructure plan, his social plan, um, his general agenda, those do pull quite a lot better than the president himself, some 10 points better. And the problem may be that he pitched himself as a president and Democrats as a party that can handle America's big problems. And it turns out they can't, at least not yet. I think Biden has a really tough road. He's on Capitol Hill. He's trying to make progress both domestically and to show leaders of foreign countries that America is capable of doing something. Um, it's really an embarrassment on the international stage to show up to the climate conference without any progress whatsoever. So Biden's very, very keen to get something done. But so far, it's been a frustrating road. I think Charlotte's right about that. But I also think that expectations of the of what the president can do these days are just way out of line. There was a book published in 2017 called The Impossible Presidency by Jeremy Suri. And in that book, Suri says that the best that a president can do is limiting the failure and achieving some good things along the way. That's the best we can expect. That seems pretty accurate to me, particularly when the president's party doesn't have a 60-vote filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. It's just incredibly hard to get stuff done. But everybody expects, or most voters and pundits kind of pretend, because they ought to know better, that the president can kind of you know, wave his magic wand and get people to vote in the Senate for things they don't want to vote for, right? Yeah, it's weird. I think especially people who are listening to us from parliamentary democracies must find it odd. The president is this odd combination of extremely powerful in areas like, you know, foreign policy, treaties. He's got a a, a real bully pulpit and extremely limited when it comes to legislation. It's not like it is in Britain or, or Canada or Israel. When you're elected, you come with a governing majority. That just doesn't happen. But I also think that the LBJ example is instructive, right? He had to do a tremendous amount of arm twisting and horse trading and the sort of things that he's, he's famous for doing. And when he was doing that in 1964, Democrats had a 28-seat majority in the Senate and an 82-seat majority in the House. Democrats would kill for that now. Now, of course, as our package pointed out, they were not as ideologically united. It was a really fractious coalition. But even so, it took an enormous amount of work to get the entire party on board, who in other advanced democracies would have, in fact, been on board from the start. OK, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to read some pretty scary tea leaves for the Democratic Party.
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So, John, things don't look that great for the Democratic Party in the immediate future, right? I mean, you have Terry McAuliffe, who may or may not win an election that Democrats would ordinarily expect to win. And you've got this continued wrangle over the budget bill in Congress, which isn't a great look for the Democratic Party. But if anything, I think these things understate the problems that the Democratic Party finds itself in over the medium and longer term. And you've been talking to our fantastic colleague, Elliot Morris, to sketch out some of those problems. Yeah, Democrats face some short-term problems, but there's no consolation in the medium or long-term either. Elliot wrote a terrific piece this week, crunching some worrying numbers for the Democratic Party. He lives in Arlington, where Joe Biden was stumping for Terry McAuliffe, and I stopped by before the rally to talk to him. The long-term pattern that's setting Democrats up for failure is really twofold, or or threefold, depending on how you count it. Uh, First is uh, that the American politics is polarized geographically. And when you have one party uh, in a geographically polarized system or in a system which assigns seats in legislatures geographically, then that party that has the geographic advantage gets to win more seats than their share of the popular vote would imply. So for some mathematical examples, at the Senate level, if you sort of create a hypothetical Senate election out of 2020 and you assume that the national popular vote is exactly tied, then Republicans would have won 31 states and 62 Senate seats, a supermajority, even though the popular vote was exactly tied. You know, in contrast, the Democrats, at least in our our simulations, would have had to win the popular vote by like 15 points to do the same thing. So that inherent advantage toward the Republicans is really what uh, Democrats are going up against at the Senate level, where, you know, legislation that they would otherwise want just seems to be dying, especially with the legislative filibuster intact. But of course, you know, these changes don't just happen geographically. Uh, So the other two problems here for the Democrats are that they're losing support among non-college voters, whites and non-whites, but especially whites. And that's especially the trend over the last 40 years. And uh, there's a a certain level of ideological polarization in the electorate today that makes it harder for parties that have been associated or become associated with the left and the right to win members with other ideologies. Uh, and, And that's just making it harder for Democrats to win voters where they need to win them. But it's not that long ago that this looked different, right? When Barack Obama came in, he had 60 Senate seats. I mean, is that world gone? When did this process begin? Well, we can trace education polarization, which is just a term that measures, you know, the share of college and non-college educated voters that are voting for Democrats back to the 1940s. So it's not entirely a recent trend. It's also not isolated to America. If you look at the same measures of education polarization in Uh, Germany, the UK, New Zealand, Iceland even, college and non-college educated voters have been moving apart since the 1950s. In most of those countries, there are multi-party systems, right? Whereas in America, there are just two. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And you also don't have a geographic allocation of representatives in your national legislature. The United States is the only one that really gives so much power, basically, to, to land and sagebrush. 
Uh, and, that, and that's what's causing the Democrats' problems. This isn't going to be easy to reverse, though. I mean, on the one hand, you can say, right, well, Obama had the supermajority in the Senate 10 years ago. Maybe Democrats could just do that again, wave a magic wand, or, or make real uh, changes to how they campaign. Those returns on investment are much smaller than they used to be. So Barack Obama was able to win those seats because his party won 40, 45% of the non-college white vote. But it's become much harder for Democrats to win them now uh, because basically the things people care about have changed. Uh, in 2008, and to a lesser extent 2012, Barack Obama and the Democrats were able to win uh, those marginal seats in the Midwest and the Northern battlegrounds, in part because of the strength in labor unions, but also because voters didn't really care as much about culture war issues, or at least they put a slightly higher premium on economic returns that they might get from their party. And in second, not only do voters care about different things now, they're also just ideologically polarized. Like I said, it's harder for Democrats to win conservative voters, even conservative Democrats, year after year, um, because the parties continue to be uh, increasingly associated with ideological labels. Um, so part of the reason we saw, for example, Hispanics move towards Donald Trump in 2020 was because there's just a lot of conservative Hispanics. And before, they were voting based off their racial identity and other things they cared about. But it's ideology and just your sort of label as a, as a uh, political figure change over time, or the importance of that changes over time. It becomes harder and harder for Democrats to win these marginal voters. And because most of those live in rural areas, or at least in states that are more rural, if not in rural areas themselves, it, it's just a sort of recipe for long-term disaster for the Democrats. So the nationalization of party identity means that basically, if you are running as a sort of reasonable centrist Democratic senatorial candidate in, say, Nebraska or North Dakota, you're still going to end up basically running as an incarnation of AOC or Nancy Pelosi, right? Uh, yeah, with some margin of error, right? You can you can push yourself away from the national brand of the Democratic Party only so much. That's not to say that the national brand is Pelosi or AOC. That's certainly what Republicans would want it to be, because those members of Congress are very different from the average median person. But the legislation and the signals uh, that Democrats send when they're fighting over legislation uh, can change that national identity. Uh, so one relevant point here, I, I guess, is that the progressive left fighting against Joe Manchin in the press, just sort of calling him wild out there, a Democrat in name only, what have you, uh, might actually hurt them in the long run because it makes the Democratic national brand uh, more lefty. Um, and so it makes it harder for Democrats to win the very voters that have put Joe Manchin in the Senate, even though Joe Manchin himself hasn't changed. And that's because lots of voters really don't pay attention to politics. They just look at D's and R's next to candidates and vote based off that. And that's not necessarily to put down that heuristic. That's really important because people can't pay attention to politics all day long like we can. But, you know, thinking broader, it also hurts Democrats, not just in West Virginia, but also in Montana, also in North Dakota, also in Wisconsin and Minnesota and Pennsylvania. And, and that's really sort of the product of these long-term trends uh, in education polarization and ideological factionalization. Charlotte, I find what Elliot said there utterly convincing. And yet it wasn't that long ago. I mean, you covered the 2008 election between Barack Obama and John McCain, that people were saying that the Democratic Party had this emerging majority that was going to deliver it, you know, power for a generation. So what what happened? It wasn't just the Democrats, right, who were swept away by their own enthusiasm. Republicans also were worried about this. You had that 
postmortem after Romney's election, where uh, the Republican Party was very concerned that some of these demographic trends would cost Republicans the White House and Congress in the future. So those trends that were anticipated haven't really been borne out for so many of the reasons that Elliot discussed. And I'm really struck by the numbers about how inefficient it is to have so many Democratic Democratic voters piled into big cities that the Republican Party would really um, have a much harder time if you could spread, if the Democrats could spread their many millions of Democratic voters around. But for now, they are stuffed into cities in big blue states where they have an enormous margin and doesn't really seem like there's any strong enough uh, migration pattern, at least for now, that will move that. I think that's broadly right. I think Democrats have learned the lesson not to put too much faith in demography. On the other hand, demography is not entirely irrelevant, right? I think about, you know, when I moved to Georgia in 2010, Democrats were excited because Georgia was going to turn blue. It's just it was always just about to happen. It didn't actually happen for another 10 years and then just barely. And so one thing to bear in mind is that there are just more reliably Republican states than reliably Democratic states. And that's going to hamper Democrats' ability to take back the Senate for a long time. On the other hand, you could see a world in which over the next 10 to 20 years, traditional Democratic and battleground states like, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania become reliably Republican if the parties persist in polarizing along educational and cultural lines, right? Those states are older than average, they're whiter than average, they're less educated than average. But on the other hand, you can see places like Texas, North Carolina, Georgia, becoming, if not reliably and wholly democratic, then at least battleground states. If that happens, you'll see a difference in the party composition, right? You'll see a difference in sort of what the expectations are going into each election. But that process takes longer than Democrats would like. And I think in the next 10 or 15 years, Elliot is absolutely right. This may be the high point for them. So if you think about how Democrats, um, in their frustration, brainstorm about how to overcome some of this stuff, the more bold ideas, including making new states, like having D.C. become a state, Puerto Rico becoming a state. And that's not without reason. So in the late um, 1890s, Congress, as Heather Cox has written about in The Atlantic, Congress added North Dakota, South Dakota, um, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, Washington, uh, in large part as states, in large part to, um, to, to swing power towards Republicans. This was a deliberate strategy that they had. Um, so those pe- and and that strategy continues to benefit them today. That's this is the problem that Democrats are seeking to overcome, right? With these big rural states that that swing towards Republicans. Um, so you could try to make new states. You could try to flip some red states. Our colleagues on the data team within the Economist had this fascinating graphic detail in October that I would encourage listeners to check out that basically was an algorithm to show how many Democratic voters would need to leave California to make the Senate fair to both parties over a six-year cycle. And they found that the most, um, the the lowest hanging fruit would be Alaska if you could get just 100,000 new Democrats to move there. Um, But it's also, they could more easily flip. Migrants could, um, in theory, could more easily flip North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Um, But that would take a lot of movement. You'd have to have two to three million people a year leaving California. That's more than four times the number that move out each year. And they'd all have to be Democrats. I mean, it's just pretty outlandish to try to make that happen. 
Um, and so then what are you left with? You're left with some of the, uh, the, the changes that John Fassman described, shoring up states that have become more blue, this very long-term transition um, that may take 15 years to unfold. So it's a, it's a hard position for Democrats to be in. And in the short term, it comes back with how do you just convince more voters with the system that you have to vote for you? And that's where you see this huge battle unfolding within the party. John, just picking up on that, a casual observer of the trends that Elliot describes, you know, somebody hearing that it's quite plausible that Democrats won't have a majority in the Senate for a decade and won't get anywhere close to the 60 votes required to pass legislation unless you get rid of the filibuster or have big carve-outs from the filibuster. Someone listening to that might say, well, why did the Democrats just do some stuff that's more popular in rural states where Republicans win votes? And Elliot's contention, which reflects the consensus among political scientists, is that that, you know, that view misunderstands what people are doing when they're voting. People are not looking at what the president's done or what Congress has done in terms of a policy agenda, saying, oh, we like this president or we like this senator because we like infrastructure and an infrastructure bill has just gone through Congress, so we're going to reward them with our vote. Voting doesn't really work like that. People vote in um, identity groups. You know, rural conservative whites tend to vote with other rural conservative whites. African-Americans tend to vote with other African-Americans. People don't switch parties much these days. Cultural grievance is a really powerful motivating force, more so than you know views about policy. And the most powerful force of all is dislike of the other side. And, and that's the thing that really gets the electorate moving. And in such an environment, it's pretty much impossible for Democrats to go to South Dakota and win a majority of votes there. I mean, it would require, I guess, among other things, you know, the party moving to the right of the Republican Party on immigration. And it's just really hard to see how that's possible, given the state of the Democratic coalition, which, as we've described already, is you know, urban, multiracial, college educated, etc. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. If people vote based on identity, does this person talking understand me, look like me, and think like me. So that just makes it, the nationalization of the Democrats' brand makes it really hard for them in rural white states. And it's even harder when you have a presidential candidate in Donald Trump who figured that out and who ran almost entirely on identity and grievance. And policy was incidental to his appeal to most people. As Elliot said, Democrats in rural states are just hampered by the fact that they are basically going to be running as avatars of AOC and Nancy Pelosi, right? It's that nationalization of the brand that really hurts them. Back in 2008, when Barack Obama was elected, three of the four senators from Dakotas were Democrats. That just feels like a vanished world. This challenge is part of why it's so important to see what Donald Trump himself does, because for better or for worse, he does continue to be a uh, huge force within American politics. And he was a major reason why so many people headed to the polls to vote for President Biden. It wasn't just for Biden. It was an active vote against Trump. Obviously, he himself attracted a record number of votes. So the question of whether he does or doesn't run again in 2024 and the degree to which he does carry the Republican Party with him will be hugely important for the shape of the race in four years' time. Well, that seems like a good place to end because that's what we're going to be talking about in next week's podcast. But before I let you guys go, there is, as ever, a quiz. In December 1959, The Economist wrote a profile of LBJ, speculating that if the choice were left to the most influential people in the Democratic Party, he would probably be the next president. 
When he did assume that office in 1963, he became the second tallest president. But which 19th century president was the tallest? Lincoln. Lincoln. Bonus point if you can tell me how tall he was. Is he 6'6"? Six, six? I think he was 6'5". He was 6'4", so you're both very close. That made him half an inch taller than LBJ. The shortest president was James Madison, who was a whole foot below Lincoln at 5'4". Question two. The Madison Square Garden Auditorium in New York is named after the fourth president. But which singer-songwriter and Long Island native has played the most shows at the venue? Billy Joel. Billy Joel. I've been to a Billy Joel concert, and he gives a concert like a man who has played there more than any other person. He's kind of relaxing. I think he takes a helicopter in from Long Island. He kind of lounges around. Occasionally, he sees fit to stand up. Then he sits back down again. Then he takes his helicopter home. (laughs) He seems very at ease. Billy Joel, it turns out, has played Madison Square Garden 119 times, and he's due to play his first show since the pandemic there next week. So if any of our listeners go along, please do send us a review. Charlotte and I are both recording from New York, and if we had missed that question, I think our regional listeners would have had a heart attack, ack, ack, ack. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to our producers, Harriet Noble and Nicholas Rofast. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com for any comments on this episode or any Billy Joel reviews. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>